Let's pray. Ask God for his help as we look at his word. Father, we're your people, and we have your word open before us. And Lord, that we, we realize that we are desperate for your grace. We realize that we cannot understand a word of your word, word of your scriptures, without your help, without the power of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, we do pray for his power. We don't seek for all kinds of other gimmicks and all kinds of other alternatives, but we just want his power, Lord, to understand your word and to live it out in this life. Uh, there's no greater miracle, really, than the fruit of the Spirit being shown in our lives. We do pray for that. We do pray for your grace. We do pray for your help as we face a new week. We pray, Lord, that as we study your word, it would equip us, give us the tools to face this new week in a way that's pleasing to you, in a way that's honoring to you. And again, we just do ask to be glor- that you be glorified in everything we do. We pray this in all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, do you have the, hint, the notes? Okay, if you could pass this out, that'd be great. Uh, by way of review, I've told you this for the last four or five weeks. Uh, to tell you the same things again, it's no trouble to me and it's a help for you. Uh, but we've been in the warning section in Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. And as I told you, you probably have memorized by now, but there was a confrontation where he confronted them as being spiritually immature. And then he got out of that and called them to action, called them to press on, called them to persevere. And then showed them that if they don't do that, there's a stern warning. That's where we looked at the warning itself over the past two weeks. But now we're moving on. We're moving on to better things in this passage. In chapter, in chapter 6, verse 9, we've reached, number 4, the encouragement. And this is really what we've been waiting for. It's been very tough, very difficult doctrine, very difficult warnings. Now we are at the part where we get some hope. It's very encouraging where we are now. Uh, we need to look at the setting. We need to set up the main point. So if you look at verse 9, we're going to make some observations. Anytime we look at God's word, anytime we teach God's word or preach God's word here at this church, we want to see the main point of the passage. We want to see how it applies to us, and we want to see how we arrive at that main point. Every time we look at God's word, that's what we want to see. So to help us establish this main point of what we're going to be looking at tonight, look at verse 9. We're going to look at four observations. Four observations in verse 9. You can fill in your blanks if you have the notes. Observation number one on verse 9. Even though he has warned them severely, he now encourages them. Instead of condemning them, he consoles them. Look at the end of verse 9. It says, though we are speaking in this way. Even though we've spoken this way, we have something else to say now. In the previous verses, the author showed them a terrifying example of people who were so-called believers, but then fell away. They were people who sat under the preaching of the gospel. They saw the contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. They discovered the superiority of the new covenant. But then what they do with it? They rejected it, and they fell away. Those were the people who ended up like Esau, people who sought for repentance with tears even, but they found no place for it. The people who, had a, who faced certain doom, as we discovered the last two weeks. But when you get to verse 9, Who's he talking to? Who's he talking about? Remember we talked about he's been speaking in the third person in verses 4 through 8. What person is he using now in verse 9? He's using back, back at the, the second person. He's speaking directly to them, directly to his readers. Now what's he going to tell them? What's he going to tell them after all those harsh warnings? Are they going to have any hope? Are all those warnings going to be the result for those for those people who he's writing to? Are they too far gone? Are they going to face destruction? Can they have true assurance? That's the big question we have when we get to this verse. What's going to happen to them? 
That's where we get to observation number two. He speaks to them as believers whom he loves. He says, but beloved. He's saying that he values them. They're dear to him. He regards them as true children in the faith. He loves each and every one of them. He has warned them. Why? Because he loves them. He has written this sermon to them because he loves them. This is the whole purpose of him writing, because they are his beloved. They are his dear ones in the faith. Now, there's a certain conviction that comes with that. So look at observation number three. This preacher, this, this, this preacher to the Hebrews, he's absolutely convinced of their right standing with God. He's absolutely convinced. I am very reluctant to speak anything bad about the English translations that we have. Because um, we have some very high-quality English translations. But there's one thing I need to say. If, if you have the ESV, um, I know we make fun of me to back and forth about, oh, I use the NASB, I use the ESV. But this is something I want to point out. It says the words, we feel sure. I think that's a weak translation of that. This is a strong word. It's a very strong statement. We are persuaded. We're convinced. We're totally convinced in our minds. We're totally persuaded. We are sure. It's not just a feeling, but it's something that's actually the truth. This is, he's absolutely convinced of their standing with God. This is really, if you look at it, a remarkable thing. Because this is the kind of language that we, unfortunately, don't hear too often. There is nothing sadder than a true believer who's in a circle of people who are constantly casting doubt on his or her salvation. Have you seen that before? Where it's like, this guy or this gal can't quite get ahead. They're like, well, they don't think I'm a believer. But when you use this kind of language and he's saying, I'm sure, I'm convinced, I'm positive about your standing with God, this is a remarkable thing. And we need to consider that as we live out together in the body of Christ. And then observation number four, what's at the core of his encouragement? What's the heart of his encouragement? The core of his encouragement is that better things awaited them. He says, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany or things that come with salvation. He was convinced of this. He was convinced that they would not experience the things that accompanied falling away. They were going to experience the opposite. They were not going to experience that judgment. They were going to experience better things. And that's the key difference as he's speaking to them now in verse 9. This word better is a note you hear played all throughout the book of Hebrews. What do we have that's better in the book of Hebrews? You have a better covenant. You have a better messenger. He's better than the angels. He's better than the, he's a better mediator. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. And he offers a better rest as well. Then the encouragement of these verses is that these better things are applied to them. They apply to every one of us who belong to Christ. True believers will persevere until the end and they will enter God's rest. So after we consider what we just saw in verse 9, as we set up the context and showing you what's going on here with the main point, he has displayed an enormous amount of confidence, true confidence, true conviction. Question for us, for as we look at this passage tonight, as we take home this passage tonight, is it, is it possible for us to have that same kind of confidence? Is it possible for you to have that same kind of confidence? This is an easy question for some, but a very difficult question for others. So it's something that we really need to consider and see how this passage addresses that question. And I'm going to submit to you as we look at this passage that it is, is possible, it is more than possible for us to have an absolute confidence about our standing with God and it's possible for us to offer that confidence to other believers that we know. 
and we'll see the implications of these statements. Now, I need to make a note. There is the doctrine of assurance, and then there is the doctrine of eternal security. One of those is subjective. The other one is objective. What do we mean by that? Can assurance come and go? Can your assurance of salvation come and go from day to day? Yeah, it can. It really can. What about God's eternal security of the believer? Does that come today and then it'll be gone when you wake up tomorrow morning for Monday? That's objective. That's certain. It's concrete. It's, it's always there. So what's the goal for us? Whenever we get weak, whenever we feel tired, whenever we feel like the song said, whenever we think we might fail, who's going to hold us fast? Christ is still going to hold us fast. So the goal is for our personal, our individual view of our salvation, of our assurance, to match the security that we have that promised from God and his eternal security. I'm, I really am afraid that many of us go through our lives wondering. And you might say, not at this church. Even at this church, people go wondering, am I really belonging to Christ? Am I really one of his children? So tonight I want you to see how you can gain the same assurance we're going to look at three ways from this passage. Three ways, and you can see those in your notes that we handed out. Number one, number one, our assurance of final salvation comes first and foremost from, number one, the character and work of God. The character and work of God. In verse 10. You say, where do you see that? Where do you see that in verse 10? These verses look like they're all about the, the author and the readers. Where do you see it? What are the very first words of verse 10? It says, for God, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and love. If you want true confidence, where is it going to be rooted? Where are you going to find it? It's going to be rooted in God's character. Is there another way to find assurance? There is no other way. You'll search for assurance in vain if God is not the foundation of that search. You may, you're going to search and search and search, but you'll find nothing. You're going to continually go up dry. Think of a dry well. You keep dropping that bucket and keep drawing it up. Nothing's going to come. As long as you're dropping that down inside yourself to look at yourself and to see your own greatness that you suppose is there, it's going to keep coming up dry. You have to be rooted in the character of God. There's no other way to start. So what particular attribute of God is in view here? If it's based on his character, what is in view in this particular verse? What's, his, what's the trait? What's the characteristic? It says he's not unjust. His justice, his righteousness. He's not unjust. He's not crooked in anything he does. Everything he does is right. Everything he does is fair. Everything he does is just. Everything he does is consistent with who he is. There are no inconsistencies with God's acts or with his nature. There's none. He's just in everything he does. But it says that he is not unjust to forget, what does it say, whose work? Our work. Our work. Does this mean that God is our debtor? Does this mean that God owes us something? You know the book of James? James rebukes a group of, I call them cheap rich people. They're such a group. It says, behold, the people who mowed your fields to pay that you're supposed to give them, and you didn't give them, it's crying out against you. And the people who have offered those prayers to God saying, hey, I never got my money. It's going and reaching the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. So there is an idea where you have to be just. Where you work, you get rewarded. But are we like the mowers? And God owes us something for everything that we've done. Is that how the case is here? Is this what this text is teaching? We said we have to have a high view of God, but is this now we're talking about a low view of God and a high view of ourselves? 
not what it's getting at. There's two things that we need to say about this. Number one is that he doesn't forget about the work that you've done for his glory. Because it does say your work. It is the individual's work. But he does not forget about that work if it's done for him. He's not saying that we're made righteous by our work. He's saying this all just to encourage us, just to give us encouragement. He says, you know what the Apostle Paul says, is your, your toil is not in vain in the Lord. What you do in the name of the Lord is not going to be in vain. It's going to count for something. But sometimes it's easy for us to think, Lord, have you forgotten me? I've been working. I've been diligent. I've been faithful. I've been doing this for your honor. I've been doing this for your glory, but it seems like you've forgotten. Does the Lord forget? Has he forgotten about you? What about Noah? How long did it take him to build the ark? Worked on building the ark. People wondering what was going to happen. He was in that boat for 40 days as it rained and rained and rained. Then he waited for that rain to go away, for the water to go away for 150 days. And if you were to turn to Genesis 8, you don't have to right now, but what does Genesis 8 say? But God remembered Noah. Those are encouraging words. He remembered Noah. He remembered all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. God remembered Noah. He didn't forget about Noah's faithfulness. He didn't forget Parents, do we forget our promises to our kids all the time? Um, others might forget about you. Uh, there was a case this week where a tooth fairy forgot to uh, deliver some money, and there was an upset uh, child on our hands. Um, but God's not going to forget his children. He doesn't forget. This is an encouragement. That's the first thing we need to say about that. But the second thing we need to say, even more importantly, we need to remember that below the surface of our work, God sees his work. This is the most important thing we can say about this, is that he sees his work. God will not forget about the work that he started. Calvin put it this way when he was preaching this passage. He said, God does not pay us a debt, but performs what he has of himself freely promised. He looks not so much on our works as on his own grace in our works. It is on this account that he forgets not our works because he recognizes himself and the work of his spirit in them. He recognizes himself in our work, and that's at the foundation why he will not forget about this, because he has started the work. He's never a debtor to us, but he means to finish the work that he started inside of us. What God cares most about and what we care most about as believers is his glory. That's what we are all invested in. Psalm 98 says he has remembered his loving kindness. God has remembered his faithfulness to the house of Israel. Psalm 105 says he has remembered his holy word with Abraham, his servant. It's because he's made these promises with his people, he's going to keep them. What he cares about his, is his faithfulness. Same thing that's going on in Philippians chapter 1. You know, the, you know the passage. Paul says, I am confident. It's the exact same word that we have in Hebrews 6. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Same confidence that the apostle Paul had, is the same confidence that the author of Hebrews had, that because God had started the work, he was going to be faithful to complete it. He would not forget about it. God doesn't leave his children half-baked. So it's only after we've laid the foundation that our assurance comes first and foremost from the person and work of God himself. It's only after we've laid that foundation that we can start go looking at subjective evidences, start thinking, looking at things that are in our lives. Because we want assurance, right? Is it appropriate to look at evidences in your life fruit is it appropriate or is it inappropriate 
what role does looking at our lives play? This is a very important question. Can we make judgments on somebody else based on the fruit that's in their lives? Do we make judgments based on the fruit that's in people's lives? Do people misjudge the fruit that's in people's lives? There's lots of problems that could happen, but let's see what God says about this in this passage. Some very important things. But we have to start with God. We have to start with the character and work of God. And there's nothing that we're going to be able to do outside of it that's going to be of any help. So let's look at number two. Assurance comes from an established pattern of God-centered work and love. An established pattern of God-centered work and love. Look back at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. I want you to look at this verse closely. We're going to make several observations on this verse. We need to see, I've stated it, that these works, these loves were God-centered. And we need to look at this passage and see how they were God-centered. So look at that letter A. They carried out God-glorifying works. They carried out God-glorifying works. Things they did were for the glory of God, where they were for him. Uh, our Wednesday night Bible study group this past Wednesday, Omar was there. We, I asked if we could just summarize all together just basic information that we knew about good works in the Bible. Like, what does the Bible say about good works? Really easy question. You can think about it in your mind even as we're talking. What does the Bible say about good works? One of the things it says is that they don't save you, right? Good works don't save you. Uh, you can't please God without faith. It's impossible to please him without faith. What about believers in relation to good works? God has ordained, prepared beforehand for believers to walk. And good works. And what are good works designed for, according to the Sermon on the Mount? People can see them and then glorify your Father who's in heaven. These are designed for the glory of God. So some really basic things about good works. Are these the dead works that are mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 6? Are these the same as those dead works that they were not to go back to? This is a new kind of work. This is a different kind of work. This is a positive work. It's not a works-based righteousness. If it were, he would have rebuked them at this point, saying you're trying to earn, God, earn God's favor based on your works. But he's saying these are positive works. These are the kind of works that you should be involved in as believers. The only works that God accepts are the works which he has prepared for his people, for his glory, for people who are in Christ. So how do you know if your work is for God's glory? How do you know if your work is God-centered? As you go throughout your life as a believer, how do you know if it's God-centered? Well, first thing you could have to look at is, do you belong to Christ? Have you put all your faith, all your confidence in Christ for your salvation? If you haven't done that, then you can be sure that your works are man-centered. They're going to be for your glory. You'd be like the rich young ruler who goes away from Christ. How did he leave Christ? He left sad. Jesus said, keep the commandments. I, I've kept all those for my youth. And he says, well, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then he left sad. He had never trusted in Christ, and he left with no assurance. But you say, okay, I've done that. I've put my trust in Christ, but I still struggle. Here's a question you could ask yourself. Is what really gets you going? What really energizes you? What gives you the most satisfaction, the most joy? Is it when people tell you how happy they are with you in your work? Is it when people are really pleased with your work or people are particularly impressed with your work? When the church appreciates your work? These are the questions that we have to ask ourselves. Or do you have the most satisfaction, the most joy, when you know that what you have done 
was what God had revealed to you in Scripture, and you did it anyway, whether or not anyone was impressed with it. These are the kind of questions you have to ask. Are you doing this for him, or are you doing it for yourself so people can be impressed by what you've done? And with all the work being done with this building, there's bound to be work that's going to go unappreciated, unseen, unnoticed. Are we doing it for God? Now look at letter B. They loved God. They loved God. Verse 10. Where was their love focused? Where was their love focused? What was the direction of it? It says the direction of their love was what? Toward his name. This is a very important point to make because their starting point was not with man, but it was with God. Now, before you think that it's unimportant for you to show your love, look at the next point, letter C. Their love for God was visible. Their love for God was visible. The text says their love was what? Shown toward his name. They demonstrated their love. They made it known. People could see it. It was observable. It was visible. The question we have to ask is how did they show that love? How did they demonstrate their love for God? It was for God, but how did they show it? This text answers this question too. Letter D. They loved what God loves. They loved what God loves. Or better, they loved whom God loves. It says the love which they showed have shown toward his name. How'd they do it? And having ministered to the saints. This was how they demonstrated their love for God. They demonstrated it, they showed it through ministry. They showed it through service. They showed their love for God by serving the people that God loves. It's not talking about absolute perfection. It's talking, not talking about that they would never sin. But because they're in Christ, they have a new direction in life. They're going the opposite direction of the world. They're practicing what lies at the heart of Christ's commandment in the new covenant. And that's what? Love one another. Look at John 13. Look at John 13, 34. When you break down the new covenant, you break down the instruction of Christ's commandment for his disciples to carry out the gospel. What was the heart of what Christ told them? John 13, 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Look at verse 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. They showed it. It was visible. People could see it. They carried it out. They loved what God loves. Look at letter E. Their love continued. Their love continued. They ministered to the saints, and it says, and they're still ministering to the saints. He's already called them immature. But even in their immaturity, they had already displayed their love for God by ministering to his people. And they were still doing it, even in this state. It was an established pattern that they had shown. What's this not based on? What's this established pattern not based on? It's not based on momentary conviction. It's not based on something that just happens like that and it's gone the next day. Um, I was 16 or 17 years old, and it was after a service back at our old church. And this man in his probably early 20s, he came in. He was there for the whole service. And... Uh, I had just gotten done with the music, and he walked up to the front, and he was broken down. Um, he looked like a broken man, and he came up and said he needed help. So we walked into the side room, kind of like that door right there, and uh, I asked him what was going on. He said he wanted to trust Christ. So at my age, I, I wish I'd have done, thinking about it now, a hundred different things, but I, 
did what I thought was lead him to the Lord. I prayed with him, and he said the right words, and he was crying, and he was broken. But the problem was he reeked of alcohol, and I wasn't sure how to handle it. I wasn't sure who to send him to or whatever, if I should just let him go and say, no, he needs to come back when he's sober. I didn't know what to do exactly, but he seemed broken, and he prayed that prayer. But do I have confidence today that he's in Christ? I don't have that confidence that he's in Christ. It seemed to be a momentary conviction, something that it was just weighing on him at the moment. Maybe he did something the night before he felt guilty about it. I don't know. Probably so. Martin Lloyd-Jones, preacher, back uh, in the past century, he experienced a similar situation. But he saw a man, uh, after, I think it was after an evening service, he seemed very convicted after the message. And Lloyd-Jones thought, I wonder if I should talk to him. He decided not to. He didn't give a defense as to why he didn't talk to him. He didn't say that he was right to not talk to him, but he just said, I just didn't talk to him. Um, but he saw the same man the next day out on the streets. And the man came up to Lloyd-Jones and said, if you would have talked to me last night, if you would have taken me uh, to the back room and explained the gospel and prayed with me, he said, I would have trusted Christ. But now I don't want to. And Lloyd-Jones' response was something like, well, if you were convicted last night, if it was true conviction, you would still have it now. So this is not based on something that's momentary, a, a conviction that just comes because your emotions take over you and you feel like, oh, I better do something about this. And someone says, well, what about Jesus? Say, okay, I'll try that. It's not momentary conviction. It's something that's lasting. Number two, it's not based on a great-sounding testimony. There are people who go from church to church, and I'm going to call it their, their testimony baiting. They're like trying to show how great their testimony is. And maybe they want to be the next person to write a famous book about their great testimony, the story about how they came to Christ. And people are often wowed by this. Wow, what a great testimony. And sometimes people get really enamored by this, but in the process, they get caught up in the story, and they forget to even think about the person's character or about their doctrine, about what they're even saying about the Christ. It's not based on that. It's not, number three, based on a temporary evangelistic zeal. I'm not trying by this point to discourage anyone from evangelism. I hope it will encourage you to continue, but I've had many close friends who they've professed faith in Christ. They said, I want the whole world to come to Christ, and then they went out, and they ended up joining the world. You can't just say, wow, that guy loves evangelism. Look at that part of their life and say, yes, they're definitely good. It's not based on that. It has to be an established pattern. Number four, it's also not based on an outburst of joy. There was also a young person I knew a while ago who professed faith in Christ. He was very excited about what he thought was going to happen, but nothing exciting ever happened. And he said, ah, I'm done with this stuff. We said, well, why? Why, why are you done, with, why are you done with, with Christ? And he said, well, I never felt anything. I didn't feel anything, he said. And to this day, he hates us. <laughs> it's not based on some outburst of joy. Now, look back, think, think back to the historical context of the Hebrews. Consider the situation that, that they were in, the original readers. Keep in mind what they had already gone through. Think back to chapter 10, things that you know. You don't have to turn there right now, but things they had gone through were these. They had endured a great conflict of suffering. They had been made a public spectacle. They had been made fun of, reproached for being in Christ. They showed sympathy to prisoners. They joyfully accepted the seizure of their property. That was the situation that they were in. So as the author looked at these readers, he saw that it was evident that something supernatural was happening in their lives. It was observable to him, 
that the good hand of God, like it, like it was for Ezra, was upon them too. He could see it. So for number two, from this text, it's appropriate, it's right, as we look at Scripture, to observe that one way we can gain assurance is by noticing an established pattern of God-centered work, of God-centered love in our own lives and the lives of others. That is one way we can gain assurance, by noticing that pattern. And then finally, number three, we can gain assurance from diligence as we await God's promises, verses 11 through 12. It's another way we can have assurance. It's through this diligence. Look at verse 11 and 12. Let's read it together. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Uh, who has a MacArthur Study Bible? Okay, I love the MacArthur Study Bible. I'm not trying to trash the ESV and the MacArthur Study Bible tonight, but there's an important thing, and Mr. Mark and I talked about it a little bit last week. He says that when you get to this verse, in verse 11, when it says, each one of you, MacArthur says that now he's talking to a new group of people. Now he's talking to a group of unbelievers. He was talking to believers in verses 9 through 10, and now in verses 11 and 12, he's talking to unbelievers. Um, I love MacArthur. I love to hear him preach. I'm going to go listen to him at the Shepherds Conference. I'm not discounting his ministry. He wrote that probably in the 80s, so he might have changed his mind by then. Um, and in far, as far as my studies went, I didn't see anyone else who had that view. Everyone else I studied has the view that these are all talking about the same group of, of, of the church, okay, people in the church, of professing believers. So he's talking to the same group that he started with. But he's calling everyone in this particular church community to keep on showing that same diligence. He said, you guys have ministered to the saints, and you're still ministering to the saints, but keep on showing that same diligence. Keep on going. It's another way we gain assurance. Don't give up. Keep persevering. And if you haven't noticed yet, this theme of perseverance comes up every single week in the book of Hebrews because this is really the main application of this book is for us to persevere. So we'll have to keep on talking about it. So what does diligence lead to? What does the text say? What is it being diligent? What does it lead to? It says it leads to full assurance. Full assurance of hope until when? The next month? Next year, it says, to the very end. So Paul expressed in 1 Corinthians, says, Jesus will confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Diligence to the very end, because Christ is holding us fast. It's maintaining hope throughout our lives until we meet Christ at the finish line. He's the author, he's the finisher of our faith. Now, what does the text say? The result of that diligence leading to hope. What is the result of that? What does the text say? It's two things. Two things it mentions. Two things that are the result. Number one, it's going to eliminate one negative thing, and it's going to bring in one positive thing. The negative thing is that you won't be sluggish. It says you won't be sluggish. Now listen to that word sluggish. Think about that word sluggish. By saying that word, he's come full circle all the way back to chapter 5 and then verse 11, where he's given them that initial confrontation and called them lazy. He said literally they were lazy in the ears. It's the exact same word, lazy, dull, sluggish. Same Greek word. Back to the beginning and saying, okay, well, now if you've listened to the instructions that I've given you, you can have this assurance. I've called you immature. I've confronted you. I've warned you. But if you've listened to what I've said up to this point, you can have assurance. You don't have to be stuck in being sluggish. You don't have to be stuck in being lazy and you're listening to the gospel. You can press on and hold fast to Christ. Positively, the positive thing that's going to happen is you will do what? You'll imitate 
other believers who have already inherited the promises. We become imitators of those who have gone before us, people like Abraham. And really, this is a little tiny preview to what we're going to see in chapter 11. This is really why he, chapter 11 is even there, because we need to imitate those people who have gone before us, people who have had that faith and patience to continue. And that's the path to inheriting God's promises, faith and patience. If you were to ask my kids what patience is, they at least should say, waiting without complaining. I'm pretty sure my mom taught me that too. Waiting without complaining. We live in a wicked world. We live in a, a desperately sick world. And we want out of it. The only way out of this world, though, is through it. It's the only way. Faith and patience. Let me leave you with three truths, three thoughts to consider as you take this passage home. Can a new believer have assurance? Can a brand new believer walks in his door and say, hey, I, I've, I met Christ yesterday. Can that person have assurance? We've talked about having an established pattern, and that's true, right? But what about the new, per the new person who's come to Christ? Can they have assurance? Say yes. We need to remember that. It's a qualification we need to give. This text is talking about giving confidence to people, to believers who had already gone through the rough things, and they've shown themselves to be true. But for the person who's come to Christ, we never want to discourage anyone who's come to Christ. Anyone who comes to Christ, is Christ going to cast them out? He's not going to cast them out, and we shouldn't cast them out either. Someone comes to you excited because he says, I'm saved now. Or, or so, he says, someone else is saved. So-and-so, I've been praying for many years, and now they've come to know Christ. And then we're always the skeptics. Yeah, yeah okay, cool. We'll see over time if he's, if he's really a believer. I think we need to kind of get away from that attitude. And this is going to become increasingly important for the children. There's a lot of children growing up in this church, and some of them, many of them, will probably profess faith in Christ. What should we do when they do that? Pat them on the head, say, okay, little Billy, or there's no Billy's in the church. Go on, you'll have to do that when you're older. How should we respond whenever they, have, whenever they tell us these things? I think we need to nurture it. I think we need to show that they are saved by faith, not by works. They don't have to spend their whole lives trying to prove to someone else that they truly belong to Christ. We need to nurture that. We need to disciple them. We need to show them that they can have true assurance if they're trusting in Christ for their salvation. It's going to be coming up in our church sooner than we know it. Second thing I want to leave you with is this question. True or false question. Obedience is necessary for salvation. True or false. Don't answer it out loud. Obedience is necessary for salvation. I'll read you what Thomas Schreiner said. He said, to say that obedience is necessary for salvation is true, but ambiguous. To say that obedience is necessary for salvation is a true statement, but it's ambiguous. So when we hear that kind of statement, we need to ask, what does that mean? What does it mean for obedience to be so essential? Does that mean that our works lay the foundation of our salvation? We know it doesn't mean that. Does that mean that what we do, after all, does earn our salvation with God? doesn't mean that. It's a simple but very important difference between cause and effect. I think it's a very simple principle, but we need to keep this clear in our heads. We need to keep it clear as we preach the gospel, keep it clear as we teach the children in the church, teach our own children, that it is a difference between cause and effect. The root and the fruit. 
Faith is the root. Work is the fruit. Faith is at the bottom of it, and it's going to produce something. It's a very simple distinction, but we have to keep it clear in our minds. If there is no fruit, there is something wrong with the root. This is the message of Jesus that we read last week, Mark 7. Every good tree bears good fruit, but every but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And back in verse 8 in Hebrews 6, if the, if the soil yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. The fruit is important, but it reveals the root. The third thing I want to leave you with is this. As we examine our outward signs of assurance, as we examine these subjective signs of assurance, we need to avoid two very common extremes. And here's one extreme. One, pe- one group of people says we should never examine the fruit. Have you ever come across those people to say, if they said they trusted in Jesus, we're not going to do anything beyond that. Don't examine the fruit because that's going to be like laying siege, as some people say, on the gospel. And this is really the whole debate between MacArthur and those people he's written against with the Lordship Salvation debate. Says, let's not examine the fruit. And this has really become popular since all the revivals in the early days of America. And then it started sweeping across our, our country, and then we brought it to all the other countries of the world. This easy believism, where you just have a few facts about the gospel lined up, and then someone says, okay, you're good to go. Let's go on to the next person. There's one missionary I know who kept hearing reports whenever he was on the field, kept hearing reports about nearby tribes that were coming in a single day, whole entire tribes coming to Christ. It was, is that possible? Yes, it happened in the book of Acts, but he wanted to know what was going on. And he's not a belligerent guy, but he wanted to know what was happening with these mass conversions. So he talked to a missionary from one of those organizations that were involved in those revivals and those awakenings. He said, how do you know that those are true believers? And this is how the missionary responded. He said, well, we ask him 10 questions and then we know. Anyone heard of Operation World? You should. You should pick it up. It's a pretty thick book. It's a guide to praying for every country of the world throughout the year. And it gives all kinds of detailed statistics about languages in that place, uh, ways that it's been ministered to in the past, but it gives prayer requests. And this is not some reformed uh, author who, that we'd all say, yes, this is our favorite author, but he's just reporting, reporting facts. But one of the main prayer requests he gives about that particular country, because that particular country has faced that kind of evangelism for many, many, many decades now, one of the main prayer requests in that country is for discipleship. Because all those tribes have been superficially, it, it says, evangelized. Just on the, the, the service level. Where we jump in there, tell the story of Jesus. Who wants to follow Jesus? Raise your hand. You answer these 10 questions. Okay, you're good to go. Let's go to the next tribe. It's precisely what we're doing throughout the world. Superficially evangelizing people. Now, are we going to blame those missionaries? And just blame them and put it all on them and say, we're good. The problem is that this is the natural tendency of the human heart. It's our natural tendency to put our heads in the sand and not examine. Be comfortable. That's what we want as humans. One preacher, Walter Chantry, said, Giving false assurance to sinners is a scriptural sign of a false prophet. Giving false assurance to someone is a sure sign of a false prophet, a false teacher. This is what was going on throughout the prophets, with people that Jeremiah faced, people that Ezekiel faced. 
Did they have healed the brokenness of my people? Well, they didn't really heal it. They healed it superficially at the surface level. They said, peace, peace. But God says there is no peace. They've been giving them a lie. That's one common extreme that you see. Is people are not willing to actually examine what's happening. Not actually look, willing to look down at the root and see what is happening. Next extreme is this. That we have to avoid. Is that some people examine themselves. Examine their hearts in isolation to the work of Christ. And this is an extremely important point to make. Is that you say, wow, am I truly a child of God? Then you start well, I better start looking at all of these outward things. And let me just put faith in Christ aside for a minute. And let me just look at what's going on in my life. And then I'll go back to Christ. That is a dangerous thing to do. Sinclair Ferguson said this. He said, we can never say this. Leaving trust in Christ at one side for the moment. Let us see how assurance can be ours. He said, there's no assurance simply derived by examining our sanctification. Listen to that statement. He said, there's no assurance derived simply by examining our sanctification. That sounds like a strong statement, doesn't it? You can't just look at your sanctification and say, okay, am I good or am I not good? Why? Because, again, you're only examining outward things. You have to examine what's going on at the root. And what's at the root? It's faith in Christ. That's where we have to start. We have to start with God. We have to start with the work that he has started in us. If we don't start there, we're going to end up at the wrong place at the end of our journey. So in other words, we should never examine ourselves apart from our faith in Christ. It has to be there at the foundation of our assurance. We can inspect the fruit all we want, but if there is no faith in Christ in our hearts, then we will inspect our hearts in vain. This passage gives us a strong exhortation. A strong exhortation to say you can have Full assurance. You can have full assurance of hope until the very end. Do you, as you're sitting here tonight, do you have full assurance that you are Christ to the very end? This passage is offering it to you. It's saying you can't have it. It's saying just look at what this is saying. Follow this instruction. Follow what God has told you here, and you can have that assurance over time. That's what we're going to pray now. We're going to pray for God to help us. For those who are struggling here tonight, that we can have that true assurance, that we can have our confidence in Christ where it needs to be, and that we can live lives that are glorifying. And let's go to him in time of prayer. Lord, we love you. We admit that we are flawed vessels. We are instruments that are chipped and broken, and we need your grace. Lord, we do ask that you would give us this assurance, Lord, that we are your children, Lord. I pray that we would not have that assurance in vain. I pray if there's anyone here tonight who's seeking for that assurance apart from Christ, Pray, Lord, that you'd stop them from doing that. Pray, Lord, that you would show them Christ clearly and his work clearly through what you've done on the cross and show them that their only hope is faith in Christ. And, Lord, I pray that we would examine the fruit appropriately after we've seen what's going on at the foundation level. Pray you'll give us grace this week to honor you in our service. Help us to minister to the saints around us. Help us to keep on ministering to the saints that are around us. Help us to have that full assurance of hope until the end. For Christ is waiting for us at the finish line. We do pray this in his name. Amen.